Cool. All right, everybody. Welcome back to episode 43 of the Independent Intel Podcast. I'm your host, Kim Bumani, and today I have a special guest, PFF's host, NFL and college reporter, Trevor Sikama. Um, Trevor just joined the PFF family a month after I joined as an intern, and he's been doing a bunch of things for PFF. We're going to go in depth to that in a few, but glad to have him on. He's a busy man, been involved with the NFL draft process and Super Bowl and whatnot. So um, before we go in depth on the topics, Trevor, been a busy man. Um, how has it been for you so far, life with PFF, and uh, what has been the thing that stood out to you the most at your new job site? Man, it's been great, Cam. We're uh, we're PFF class of 2021, so uh, so we came on at the same time. I love hearing that. It's been a lot of fun for me since. Hopefully, uh, it's been a lot of fun for you as well, man. I, it's it's been great working with the guys and, and working with everybody in the company. You know, just you could see the passion, and you could just see it all the time. I mean, we've got these these weekly meetings we do on Mondays, and I'm glad that we do them at the beginning of the week because they just get me so fired up. And there's so many people that are so passionate about what they do. Um, not just on kind of like the written or the video or even the podcast side, but everything that's going on behind the scenes with building the website and, and, and just expanding what we do, the betting tools, the draft tools, the fancy tools, everything, man. People are so fired up about what they do at PFF and it's so contagious. And honestly, man, you know, getting to cover it with those kinds of people, yourself included, um, makes it a lot of fun for me. I always tell people my favorite part about this business, of course, I get to talk about sports, but it's always the people that make it a lot of fun and make it motivating and take it to the next level, make it something that you really enjoy. And so the uh, PFF has definitely been part of that as well. So before PFF, you worked for the, um, the, the draft network and you were like a senior NFL draft analyst with them. Then you made the pivot to PFF this past year. What have you been able to bring from your previous job site with the draft network to PFF? Because I know with the draft network, you guys cover and go in depth on these draft prospects year round. And you kind of had that same job position at PFF. So whatever you took from that previous destination and added to here to just be a better person for the new company. Yeah, kind of the same thing. I mean, I worked with such great people at, at, at Draft Network, people that know so much. I mean, John and Ben and Kyle and Joe and, and Ryan and Brantley and uh, Jordan. It just, it's just so, so many people who have worked at TDN that I had the chance to work very closely with, um, especially on the written side and the scouting side of things. They really taught me a lot. And, you, you know, you get to know these prospects really well. You get to know their game really well. You get to become a better analyst. And I think anytime that you're in the room with like-minded people, um, that's going to, or at least people that are going to, I should actually say, push you, I guess, outside of your comfort zone, maybe not exactly like-minded is, is how you really improve what you're able to do. And that's definitely what happened at TDN, which was a lot of fun for me. And hopefully I've been able to bring a lot of that to PFF as well, because the NFL draft has been something that I've, really gravitated for towards since the beginning of my career. And that was all the way back when I was a student at the university of Florida back in uh, 2012, 2013. I ended up one of the very first things that I did once I knew I wanted to get in this business was I made my own NFL draft website. I just made a, a Weebly site kind of for free in my spare time that allowed me to post my mock drafts and my rankings and, and just get those things out. And it kept me motivated to be better at it. And, um, as the years have gone on, I've continued to do that. It's something that's a lot of fun for me. And I tell people all the time, I hope that, I hope that my joy for what I do always comes out of my work, whether it's written or podcast or video, because it is a lot of fun for me. This is something that I love doing. And, um, you know, you, you get those questions all the time where it's like, Hey, if you weren't doing this, what else would you be doing? And I don't know what else I'd be doing, 
but I could tell you, I'd still be doing mock drafts. I'd still be writing mock drafts in my free time and I'd still be doing all that kinds of stuff. And so, man, working at the draft network was a lot of fun. Um, it was a great building block for, for what I'm doing now. PFF, I've been able to even expand what I do um, in the drafts landscape and covering college football and the NFL and all that kinds of stuff. So it was great. I really enjoyed my, my time at TDN and it's definitely helped be able to cover things the way that I want to cover it here at PFF. Yeah, man, from Weebly to covering the Senior Bowl in the East-West Shrine game. What a, awesome. what a um, evolution in that process as well. Also, um, my man Trev has a solid, solid podcast called Stock Exchange with Connor Rogers. He works with PFF, and he also works with uh, Bleacher Report. He's a draft nut in his own right, and it's something I've been really keeping tabs on since you guys created it, and I like it. I like it a lot now. I mean, you guys post like at 12-something, you know, midnight, but I'm always, you know, there listening, you know what I'm saying, to kind of prep me up for the next day. So um, for all my listeners, check that out. Stock exchange with Trev and Connor Rogers. Great. They go in depth on the variety. And it's not just draft stuff, but also the NFL as a whole. But before we get to the topics, one last thing. Uh, you were a Buccaneers beat reporter for reporter.com during a three-year span from 2017 to 2020, which is a little bit ironic because I've been a lifelong Saints fan. So my question to you is, what did you enjoy the most about covering um, the Buccaneers prior to, you know, when Tom Brady came there during that three-year span. Oh, well, you know, this is a Saints fan. You've experienced a little bit of Jameis Winston. I had Jameis Winston. I was covering him for three years and uh, there ain't a dull Sunday, man. He makes it entertaining no matter what you're watching. So man, I, it, it was a lot of fun and it was a blast. And I'm from just South of Tampa and, and I grew up in Florida and, you know, getting to cover my hometown team as my first full-time job in the industry it was a dream come true. And, you know, it was, it was awesome. And, you know, you know, I tell people this when I kind of reminisce on this story, you know, my dad and I grew up listening to the local sports radio station whenever I was in the car with him driving somewhere. And then, you know, when I got that job, I was doing radio spots and I was doing appearances on that, on that uh, radio station. So, you know, my dad would text me and tell me they heard me on the radio and things like that. And, you know, outside of even just covering the team, that was really cool getting to cover my hometown team. That was a lot of fun for me, but it was great, man. Being a beat reporter, taught me a lot. Uh, it, it taught me really how to be a professional in this business, how to go about finding your own voice, but also doing it in a way that uh, makes you legitimate, makes you professional, and it helps you kind of accelerate and meet the right people and um, just kind of expand what you do and grow. Honestly, I think that that would be a great way to describe my time at Peter Port. It was just three constant years of growth. I was uh, in my infancy stages of what I was going to be like as a writer and a reporter on that in that year one and year two, I was getting a little bit more comfortable, kind of picked up podcasting things on video. And, you know, year three, you start to know the team super well. You start to know the other beat reporters super well, the fans, the listeners, the readers, everything super well. And um, that was that was just a really great time for me to kind of learn who I was as a journalist, uh, what my voice was going to be in this big industry, not just in the Tampa market, but everywhere. And it was a lot of fun. You know, you meet a lot of good people there as well. It was a dream covering my hometown team. And it was, uh, it was great, man. It was, it was a lot of fun. I, I miss those days. I still miss them all the time. I love working at PFF. Whenever I say I miss something, it doesn't mean that I don't like where I am right now. I truly do love where I am. I love Peter, or I love PFF, but uh, there's always certain things and memories and everything about covering Tampa, the days back in Peter report that I miss with all those guys in that team. Yeah, it always has to be a unique balance as a beat reporter covering the same team for three years. The nuance and the creativity you have to add as a writer to talk about a squad, especially that Tampa squad that has some lean years. But you, like you said, you do it for the love. And this is a team you grew up on and you love to write. You love to talk sports. So it becomes effortless 
But on the outside looking in, I mean, I understand people are like, man, three years you doing that. So, but um, that's dope. I'll that's you, dope. I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you too. I'll just say that those Bucks Saints games were some of my favorite, man, because those Bucks teams, for whatever reason, those Bucks teams, those Saints teams, they hated each other. And I don't really know why, because the Saints were actually good during that time that I was down there. The Saints were actually making the playoffs and actually had Super Bowl aspirations. And Tampa absolutely did not. They were missing the playoffs every year. And so, but it was funny, man. I, I remember getting to go to New Orleans and cover the game in New Orleans. And when the Saints would come to Tampa, man, it was, uh, it was, those games were some of my favorite, man. The players got up for it. The beat reporters got up for it. The fans got up for it. Like, you always just knew it was a big game when the Saints were playing the Bucs, no matter what. Hey, always a big game indeed. Bucks, Falcons as a Saints fan. I know those are always the true, most yes. toughest matchups. Toughest matchups, yep. whether in the Dome or on the road. Um, Let's move on to the Super Bowl. We're going to recap it a little bit, go break by break, talking about, um, obviously, on the Rams side, they won Cooper Cup and Aaron Donald. So, Cup was the MVP. And PFF did what they do always fantastically great all those things and whatnot he finished with the highest receiving grade regular season and postseason of the 2021-2022 season 93.1 in fact to be specific and in this game he had an 84.9 receiving grade saw him catch eight of his 10 targets for 92 yards two scores he elevated his play when obj went out with the torn acl um his playoff run has been phenomenal he's had three straight games with double digit targets um with each outing he finished with at least 80.4 receiving grade Every time he got double-digit targets, it's basically a playoff run of this caliber. It kind of puts him in playoff immortality because six touchdown scores, caught 33 of his 41 targets, almost a 500 yards. So in your eyes, it comes to himself as arguably the best player in the league this season, which ironically, we have another guy we're going to talk about in AD. I mean, they, neck and neck. But did he do that with a fabulous run that he had? Man, I mean, he's, he's, he's right there in the conversation, man. I mean, once you get into the those, I would say, like, top three or four guys, right? I mean, you can make a case for anybody that's so well. But, I mean, Cooper Cup wins Offensive Player of the Year for a reason, man. He wins Super Bowl MVP for a reason. He was the postseason MVP as well. Of course, quarterback means more than anything. And you got to tip your hat to Matthew Stafford, who was able to overcome a lot, including, including the, the pressure, not just the teams he was fighting against, but uh, the pressure as well that he was able to overcome. But he doesn't do that with Cooper Cup. I mean, if you take Cooper Cup and replace him with almost any receiver in the NFL I I think that maybe even they fall short he was just and that kind of I think hopefully puts into perspective just how good he was I mean he was uncomfortable this year it didn't matter I mean you look at you look at that Super Bowl even look at that last drive cam the Bengals knew there's only one player there's only one player that could beat him one they couldn't stop him they couldn't stop him they they marched down the field on the back of Cooper Cup they get into the end zone. Remember, Cooper Cup caught that touchdown, and Von Bell absolutely smacked him. And I thought he was going to be knocked out of the game. The touchdown ends up not counting. I, you you could see the moment, man. Cooper Cup's laying down the laying on the ground after getting absolutely smacked, and he says to himself, "I better get up because nobody else is about to win this Super Bowl for me. I gotta I gotta get up and I gotta finish this thing for our team." And he does, and it was just you know it was an incredible performance. It was a great way for Cup to cap off an unbelievable season you know in his post-game speech he was talking about how you know it was the team award and he's just so thankful for the team around him and yeah I mean that's that's definitely what you want to hear from somebody it's great to hear that it's great to hear him being such a great teammate but at the end of the day man he's just a catalyst he was the catalyst of that whole offense and you know was there whether it was as an outside receiver a slot receiver short intermediate deep it didn't matter Cooper Cup was the guy in the NFL from a passing standpoint that you wanted to have on your team this past season. I think all the stats, the accolades, the PFF grades, it all speaks for it, man. So unbelievable job this season. And what a way to cap it off with Super Bowl MVP. Very fitting for him. 
Yeah, I had the great opportunity to draft Cooper Cup in fantasy. And I oh, actually drafted him the year great. prior. Great year. Um, won my league, actually. Uh, but I drafted him the year prior. He didn't have a great season. Uh, it was Jerry Goss last year. But I always felt like the year coming up in fantasy, I knew Cup was always going to be a focal point in this offense because the creativity of McVay. And Cup has shown throughout his career that he finds ways to get it done. And this year he was the main focal point. Um, which shocked a lot of people because normally Robert Woods in years prior was the guy that was being featured as a guy that can run in the slider on the outside. And he was so productive, Cup, man, just making plays. And so I think in that game, like you said, the Bengals knew what time it was and they just had no answer. And I've never had the opportunity to grow up and watch Jerry Rice dominate a game or dominate a Super Bowl. But I kind of saw what that felt like from old heads that talked about the game to me. There was just no answer for this guy. And, you know, with Stafford throughout the year in a time of crisis, he goes to cup the Tampa Bay game in the divisional round, goes to cup down 10 against the Niners, goes to cup down, down really by more than a few. It wasn't going to be enough, goes to cup and he made it work. And so obviously Cincinnati not having a woozy down the streets really killed them because now you got Eli Apple one on one against him. That's a mismatch. But cup makes things work. And I think the thing I like about him the most is he's a great round runner and he's unguardable and he's movable. You can play him inside. You can play him outside. Um, they even had him do a reverse in the backfield to convert a first down and help keep that drive alive. Um, he arguably, in my opinion, was the best receiver in football. And he was always the most underrated throughout his young career. And he kind of put it all together to have the perfect season to be the best player at his position in the NFL. Um, oh, yeah. We got it. Trevor, you, no, you want to say something? I was just, no, I was, just, I was just about to say, man, him and Devontae. Like, it's it, like you could just – him and Devontae Adams, they're uncoverable, man. It's like you can make an argument for either of them. Cup had a great year this year. Devontae had a great year last year. Devontae obviously had a good year this year too. But it's those two guys, man. And and Hopkins' situation kind of, you know, when he's fully healthy and when things are going, he puts himself in that conversation. But, yeah, I mean, you're talking about one of the best, man. Not just one of the best wide receivers in the league, one of the best just players overall in the league in Cooper Cup, and he proved that this year. Yeah, him, Adams, 1A1B, and then Jefferson, he's right there. He's coming oh, up as dude, well. He's awesome, too. Yeah. <laughs> he's phenomenal. Um, Aaron Donald, you know, he arguably could have won the MVP, but he took over down a stretch when it looked like the Bengals are going to make that arguably game-tying or game-winning drive. He may retire potentially during the offseason, and he has a Hall of Fame career that many interior D linemen would dream of. In the Super Bowl, he lived in the pocket, terrorizing Joe Burrow with seven total pressures to go with his four hurries and two sacks. He also had the game-ending hit on Burrow that forced an incompletion on fourth and one. All time, how do you define the dominance of AD? He's been doing it for just eight years. And so when I found out he was going to potentially retire, when Rodney Harrison put that out in the airwaves, I was like, for real? Then I looked, I'm like, he's 30. Okay. Then you look at his stats, and it's like, bro, he's been the best defensive player since I've been in, like, high school, middle school. So, I mean, he's been that type of guy. How do you describe his dominance in your eyes? I mean, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. I mean, there's no doubt about it. If he hangs it up right now, he is a first ballot Hall of Famer. He's been the best defensive player on the planet for the last eight years that he's been in the pros. He was unbelievable in his last final years at Pittsburgh, if you want to bring that into account as well. Just how dominant this guy has been really for the last decade. And, you know, you, you can even take the defensive tag away. Most talented, most productive, and just, I'll say, like, best – pound for pound if you will if we want to use a boxing reference football player on the planet over the last half decade and more it's been Aaron Donald and you look at how he how many defensive player of the year trophies he has won um you know he's probably honestly man could have won more uh, we just I think we're sick of giving the award to him because he's won so many already in a short period of time but he is unblockable he, he really is and I think that 
it's incredibly poetic that the final play of the game was sealed by the best player uh, in the world at what he did. And man, I've gone back and I've watched that play so many times. It is terrifying how quickly he gets to Joe Burrow. It, it, I mean, you could, you could have put, you could have put three offensive linemen in front of him and he would have done something like Neo in the matrix and just made all of them miss and threw all of them off of him. And, and he probably still would have got to Burrow before he got, could have released that ball in that fourth down. That's how motivated he was. And I mean, it was just a culmination of how good he has been his entire career. I really do believe he's a first ballot hall of famer. If he hangs it up, I don't think he's going to be done. You know, he obviously the Rodney Harrison thing right before the game kind of said like, Oh, like this kind of could be it for him. But then, after the game, Aaron Donald said, like, I'm just focused on this moment. And I think a little bit further after the game, I think when he was asked about it, he's like, he, he, he said to people, he's like, remember, I never said that. Rodney Harrison said that, but I never said that. I never said that I was contemplating retirement. So hopefully he's not done. I'm not done watching him absolutely dominate. But even if it is uh, the last game that we saw from him, he won a ring. He sealed the ring. Uh, he's the first ballot Hall of Famer. No question about it. Yeah, I mean, looking at his dominance, we both feel like he could play at least five more years. But oh, when you look at it in his totality, you're like, well, three-time defensive player of the year. He's been an all-pro seven consecutive seasons. He's finally got a ring. He's 30. Everybody regards him as the best defensive player of his generation. What more does he really have to prove unless he feels like he's got so much left in the tank he can still go? And in PFF standards, his lowest defensive grade, in his career on the season with his, was his rookie campaign, and it was 90.2. All right, his highest PFF grade was last season, 94.5. And then this year, he had a 93.5 defensive rating. It's basically like if he packs it up, he'd be like Barry, the Barry Sanders of D-linemen, kind of like that. But yep. the difference is, sorry, Barry, down on the ring. So that's that's really the culmination of it all. Um, for Cincy, Joe Burrow was okay in the Super Bowl considering the pass protection circumstances he was under. I mean, he was sacked seven times in this game, mm-hmm. faced 18 total defensive pressures. He had zero turnover-worthy plays, despite just having one big-time throw. He did have a couple drops at a 7.0 ADOT. But his 58.2 passing grade showcased that the amount of duress that he faced really put him in the hands of the defense in a negative light. Uh, we, we get it. We're going to talk about the Bengals' offensive line a little bit later, but how much – of these sack issues throughout the playoff run for Burrow. I've kind of been on him because we know the O-line's trash, but Burrow does have a tendency to not navigate the rush at times or hold on to the ball a little bit too long for the timely manner. Um, Were there a few sacks in the game? Looking back, you were like, well, if Burrow would have stepped up or escaped or threw the ball away potentially, it would have had not such a damning effect because after the game, he sprained his knee and he doesn't have to have surgery. Um, he'll be able to go in the offseason, do the rehab process and whatnot. But uh, what do you think some of that has to do with him just not understanding the circumstances he's under? Yeah, and I think that you can look back at even games before the Super Bowl, and there's plenty of things to point to where you look at all the sacks, and you go, okay, these aren't all in the offensive line. Some of these are on Burrow. And, you know, he's just two years in the league, right? And you look at he only played, you know, he didn't even play a full season last year. And so, like, he's still learning, man. And this is something that he's going to learn over the next couple of years because – you know, as much as we love these quarterbacks playing really well at a young age, I mean, when do quarterbacks normally hit their prime? 
late twenties, early thirties, right? I mean, like that's the prime of quarterbacks. You've got to get these guys. They got to have four or five years in the league kind of now just sometimes it takes it's it, it's sooner than others right we look at guys like lamar jackson guys like uh, josh allen who have peaked or, i don't want to say peaked but that that might be insulting patrick mahomes but like guys who play really really well at a young age and that's not the standard the standard is often when these guys have a couple of years to learn really get things under the belt especially when you're not as physically gifted as those players are which joe burrow is not it's always going to be a between the ears thing for joe burrow he's always going to be an assassin of the mind if you will where he's going with the ball how he's reading coverages how much confidence he has and i think that taking less sacks is just going to be part of that if you have full confidence that joe burrow can be this confident guy who doesn't have the best quarterback tools in the world yet still be able to win you a super bowl then you also fully believe that the these sacks are gonna go away a little bit or he's gonna get a little bit better at facing them and so yeah no doubt cincinnati has to improve their offensive line but you know, adjusting how he navigates the pocket, maybe when to get rid of the ball, things like that. That'll all come. That'll come with experience. I've got no worries about that. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, it's all about experience. I think at times um, the magnitude of it all got to his head. And what I mean by that is, I mean, you read the, you read the press clip and you're like, man, Burrow did it despite getting killed. Um, he's relentless. He's cold-blooded. He's a killer. And I think at times he's like, I can stand in that, stand under that fire and play through it and at times you can't and at times it's okay to take a loss by throwing it away or preserving yourself by maybe running for an extra yard or taking the underneath stuff and I don't you're right I don't think it's all on Burrow to a degree the offensive line some to blame uh Zach Taylor's you know coaching at times is some to blame but as he gets older I think he'll understand the magnitude of it all we've seen it with Josh Allen we've seen it with Mahomes we've seen it with Herbert they have great flashes more more good things than bad but there are times where the youth comes in and they just don't want to go down without a fight because they look at going down without a fight as an L. And mm. it's not a long-term L. It might be just an L for a drive, but it's all about the long game moving forward. And I think Burrow will figure that out because tough nose player. He's got all the tools that you need at the quarterback position, and he's going to put it all together. Now, the Bengals' whole line during the Super Bowl was pretty bad. Um, Trey Hopkins had the highest PFF pass blocking grade at 50.9. And then everybody else was 40 and below. Jonah Williams was 41.4. Hakeem Adeniji was 26.0. Quentin Spain was 20.3. Isaiah Prince was 2.4. I deducted all of this as, look, we understand the right side of the Bengals offensive line is extremely upgradable. I think the right side is going to be totally changed during the offseason. Prince had the lowest grade out of the linemen in the Super Bowl, and Adeniji gave up the most sacks, three. But – we're going to go reverse in this aspect. What part of the Bengals' current O-line do you feel like is salvageable at all? Do you think they're all bad apples? Or do you feel like there's parts of the O-line the Bengals can resolve and then leave out the guys that have some sense of a glimmering hope down the line to kind of make the whole unit as a whole a more cohesive front in the offseason? I'm not ready to give up on Jonah Williams. I like Jonah Williams when he was coming out. Maybe he's not the franchise left tackle that we thought that he was, but I still think that he can that he can be good. I mean, I, I know they drafted Jackson Carmen to maybe be like a tackle or an interior offensive lineman, but I think that he's clearly going to be more of an interior offensive lineman. Uh, Quinn Spain has not played well. Keem Adenji, you mentioned, has not played well. Isaiah Prince, I don't think, has played well. So, I mean, I, I just – 
basically Jonah Williams is the only one that I'd be like, okay, you can either keep him at left tackle, maybe kick him over to right tackle, get creative with him. You don't have to move on from him. Everybody else I think should be at least on notice. Right. I mean, like that's kind of the play that we've seen this past season. They're getting their quarterback hit. It goes all the way back to last year. This year, it clearly was not enough in the postseason, And, um, I think they need to look at what the Kansas city chiefs did last off season, how aggressive that they were to upgrade their offensive line and follow that blueprint. Now you're probably not going to have the chance to upgrade it as drastically as they did. Right. Because you look at the money they were able to spend on Joe Tooney, who was a free agent. You saw their opportunity to go get Orlando Brown in a trade. Uh, they drafted Creed Humphrey uh, in the mid rounds. They drafted Trey Smith in the later rounds. Both of those guys ended up being starter studs for them. So I don't know if it's going to be that much of a turnaround that we saw with Kansas city, but get close, you know, but buy enough tickets to potentially win the prize that was the Kansas city chiefs offseason and how they were able to turn over their, um, their offensive line in, in the span of just one calendar year. So I think that's probably the goal for them. Jonah Williams is probably the only guy who I'm like, okay, I can get a good right tackle or a left tackle out of him. Everybody else, they gotta be on notice. They gotta be on notice for an upgrade. Yeah. Jonah Williams problem has been health and he kind of played mostly throughout the year. And like you said, there's flashes. And I feel like probably long-term, he's more of a right tackle, doesn't have the longest arms, and I think that hurts him against angular athletic defensive ends on the outside. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I think he's a guy that you can keep. Everybody else is expendable. It's unfortunate with Quentin Spain because he was solid with the Titans. And then he came to the Bengals after a little stint with the Bills, and he just hasn't been the same. And I think what a lot of people aren't recognizing is um, the offensive line as a whole is a unit. And so when you have a couple of weak links in your line, it does make the line as a collective look atrocious. As a Saints fan, I know because Cesar Ruiz sucks. So we have to help Ruiz at times on the interior and that compromises um, everything else on the outside. So um, like you stated, the blueprints, the Chiefs blueprint, I'd even go this far. Um, they got the third most cap space in the NFL. Um, I think you should put all that energy in trying to re-sign Jesse Bates. If you can't re-sign Jesse Bates, I feel like you should tag and trade them potentially so you can maybe trade up in a draft and get those tackles. I'm really like for the Bengals, I take the trade up in a draft and get a tackle in the top 10 if you can. And I know that's a little abnormal because usually when we hear about guys trading up, it's for quarterbacks and NFL drafts. But the offensive line is so pressing because Burrow got sacked 70 times in the regular season and the playoffs combined. That's Derek. Well, that's David Carr like numbers. You don't want that stuff to continue long term because no. he's going to be put in jeopardy and his rookie year ended last season because of poor offensive line play you don't want that thing to happen moving forward with a team that you have right now in the ceiling that's so big um to wrap up the super bowl recap in particular eli apple um had the second highest coverage grade of his career at 60.4 i mean that's not the greatest but he flashed um he had an 89.4 coverage grade versus the raiders in week 11 and then he also burned his coverage grade in the super bowl was a 55 um, they have a ton of money this offseason, the Bengals, to resolve the issues. But in the year where Apple really flashed signs, um, as well as lowlights, do you think after the performance he had in the Super Bowl, can the Bengals bring him back? Because Cincinnati, they took the cheap route in the secondary. Um, they didn't extend Bates. Um, they took a flyer on Von Bell the year prior. They, they took a flyer on Awuzier. They took a flyer on Apple, and it paid off. It got him to the Super Bowl. They all overachieved. But at this point in Eli Apple's career, he is who he is. And I know the Bengals fan base is calling for his head and don't want him to be on the team. But do you feel what Apple has shown throughout his career? He can probably stay on the Cincy squad, maybe in a demoted role, 
or do you feel like as a collective push him to the side and start a new one secondary no i think that he i think that he should stay on the team but i i i want to make it clear i don't think that eli apple staying on the team means that you don't look to upgrade and secondary is so important especially corner play because it's very up and down and not only that like there's a lot of good corners that become bad corners just like overnight and you, you just don't see it coming i feel like josh norman was one of the, the one that really sticks out to me like josh norman had this point where he was thought of as like a top three corner in the nfl and then it just it literally felt like overnight it was like up oh, josh norman's bad now and it was just like okay wow that was quick and it just i think it goes to show how volatile the cornerback position is so i would tell any team never think that you are fully set at corner like never shut the door from an upgrade so i think eli apple like you said he had his best year this past year i think he played really well yeah, do you want him guarding Cooper Cup at the end of the at the end of the Super Bowl? No, you don't. But he shouldn't have been in that position anyways. And so I think that him being on the team, being a depth piece, being a rotational guy, that makes a lot of sense. But you got if you're Cincinnati, yeah, you got to have your eyes on an upgrading corner as well. You do. I think at this point, Eli's career is a rotational guy, which is disappointing yeah. because in the grand scheme of things, that means he's somewhat of a bust because he's picked top ten in his respective draft class. But I feel like Apple's problem isn't talent; like the talent is there. I think it's confidence. And when his confidence is rattled, the ball skills disappear, um, his ability to turn around and be aware of the circumstances on the field, they disappear. And like you stated, he wasn't supposed to be in that position. Ouzier got hurt. And you got to know at this point of the season in the Super Bowl who what your personnel is. And if he is matched up on Cooper Cup, that safety help has to be there. And I think putting him on an island on those situations, having him get exposed in scenarios where he was in the frame, it's not like he got completely burned off the screen. It's unfortunate. So I know um, NFL Twitter hates him. <laughs> like, I, as a Saints fan, I know Saints nah, fans don't like him. I was him. just going to say, your Saints fans just hate him. <laughs> or, or just hate him because, you know, he dissed the city. But as a talent, I'm not about to be out here and act like he's – Super, super trash. I think at he's this point, he is. He's, not a, he's not a bum. I think he belongs in the league, but I feel like he's more of a four or fifth corner. And I think overall, that secondary for Cincinnati, they've got to build upon that moving forward because I also think Awuzie, as great as he played this year, he's not a number one either. I think he's more of a mm-hmm. two. I think they got the slots, slot locked down with Hilton. Um, like I said, as long as they bring back Bates, that's cool. Get you enough great at corner, whether that's in the draft or free agency, I think they can do that as well. Um, non-playoff teams that can make the postseason jump in the 2022-2023 season. That's the next topic. Um, Trevor, who's, I'm, I'm, I picked two teams in particular. I don't know how many teams you picked, but okay. um, we don't expect every team to make that Cincinnati Bengal leap where it's like you're in the cellar and you're in the Super Bowl. But who can make like a Vegas leap? Who can make a um, an Eagle leap where – um, you weren't in the playoffs the year prior and you're in the picture you're in the wild card game and you're competing. Who can make that jump? All right. So I've got three teams that I got and they're, they're all to like varying degrees. I think the one that's the closest that would be the easiest one to bet on would be the chargers, right? Because if they simply tie the last game, then they're in the playoffs and they would have been right there. Justin Herbert's one of the best young quarterbacks in the game. I know they got to figure out what they're doing with Mike Williams, if they're bringing him back, but um, I think you got to sort out corner a little bit because Chris Harris is your best corner and he might be gone, but I think they have, they have the defensive players outside of maybe getting a corner upgrade and definitely getting a defensive line upgrade there next to Joey Bosa too. 
you upgrade those two areas and you figure out what you could do with Mike Williams if you could bring him back. And I think you've got a good group. You got Rayshon Slayer, you got Corey Lindsley. They're get, they got to figure out what they want to do at right tackle because it seems like they're going to move on from Brian Bulaga. But they have a really good core there and they've got a really good head coach, I think, at Brandon Staley. And that's a team that certainly could make the easy jump into the playoffs. Another one that I want to bring to the table, the Denver Broncos, a divisional foe of theirs, because I think that this is one of the best rosters in football. They just need a quarterback. I think it's very real. Aaron Rodgers is playing for the Denver Broncos next year. I really do. I think that it's, I don't think that Rodgers is done. I think he's I think he's just either playing with Green Bay or he's playing with Denver. I don't think he's done. I think he wants to play one more year. I I know Rogers says that football isn't the only thing in his life and he'd be comfortable walking away. He'd be comfortable retiring, but he just won back-to-back MVPs. And he has an opportunity to do what Peyton Manning did and switch teams, go to a different, really talented team. Funny enough, the exact same team in the Denver Broncos immediately become Super Bowl contenders and have a shot at really winning it. Now I know that he has with the Packers, but he he has, I, it would, it is so hard for me to believe that Aaron would hang it up, not just at the peak of his own game, but also knowing that he could move on from green Bay, which might go into a little bit of a rebuilding mode and just plop himself on a contender immediately right away. I don't think he's going to I don't think he's going to retire because of that. So if Denver gets themselves a veteran quarterback, I think that they're immediately playoff contenders. They're potential contenders for the division even with Patrick Mahomes and Kansas City in that division. And then the third team that I'm going to throw out there, fun, the Washington football team. We thought the Washington football team was going to be a top five defense in the NFL this year, and they were not that. They didn't figure it out, and they were not having a good time in Washington. But they still have the pieces to where that could be the case. They still got a great defensive line. Cole Holcomb's good in the middle. Jamin Davis should be better next year. The secondary should still be should, should be a lot better than it was the previous season. So it's, it is logical to expect a defensive bounce back from Washington. And then when you look on the offensive line, yeah, they got to get better along the offensive line. They get themselves maybe one really nice passing weapon with Terry McLaurin. They've got Antonio Gibson. And again, if you go get a Russell Wilson, if you go get a Derek Carr, if you go get a veteran quarterback who might be able to help you out, that's a team that could really take advantage of a division that shoot, you know, even with the Cowboys at the top, I think that they could expose the Cowboys a little bit and give the Cowboys a run for their money. So I would say that those three teams, depending on what happens in the draft and free agency are three teams that I think could be making a postseason run next year. Two of them are solid. Uh, Washington is a shot in the dark, but you said that was a fun one for sure. <laughs> um, I think the charters, like you said, is the easiest one, like, because they were right there. And I think at this point, heading into the off season, Really, the things that they have to fix are somewhat fixable. I think they do retain Mike Williams. The world on the street is they want to keep him. I mean, he did have a career year last year in terms of catches, yards, second career high in touchdowns with nine. I mean, he was phenomenal. And Justin Herbert's ever so evolving. So I think he's going to stay in the fold. I think the biggest situation for them is defensively. They have Derwin James and they have Joey Bosa. They're phenomenal. But everywhere else in the defense is some question marks. Um, I like Asante Samuel Jr. a lot coming out of Florida State, but he couldn't stay healthy. And then when he was on the field, he was a little bit inconsistent. You expect that for a rookie corner. Um, and then really the interior side aspect and stopping the run is something that they need to resolve. They were one of the worst run defenses in the league. So I think these are all fixable things that they can add on the defensive side in the draft. So I think the Chargers will be right there. Denver, like you said, is valid. It's just I, here's the problem. You know, Rodgers is Rodgers. 
He's eccentric. He, he, he goes on his own accord. And it does look like an easy situation of they got hacky to Little Rodgers. It's the perfect setup for Rodgers. Better O-line, more diverse weapons. A running game because Javante Williams broke out late in the year. Simple. Mm-hmm. Go to Denver. But in the same breath, he could also stay in Green Bay because he has the money. He has the security. He knows he can run the NFC North. And he knows that one more push, all I got to do is get to the Super Bowl. Because once you get to the Super Bowl, anything can happen, like we saw with the Rams and the Bengals. So I don't know, like if Denver doesn't get Rodgers, I think we both know they're screwed. Because now uh, it's like, okay, Drew Locke, we don't really like him. So they're going to potentially reach in a draft in the first round and take a quarterback. And I think the biggest regret Denver is going to have. PS2 is phenomenal. He's a great corner. But they probably should have took Justin Fields. And I know they didn't take Justin Fields because it's like, we want Rodgers. Rodgers is going to come through. But now if he doesn't, you basically pick the coach to get a guy you don't have. And so what do you work with now? Uh, my my other pick is the Bears. And the reason why I picked the Bears is because Eber Flus is your coach. He was phenomenal in Indi- uh, Indianapolis because of the talent that he had coaching up that defense. Um, Darius Leonard's a stud, but um, he worked with Kenny Moore in the secondary, Pierre Desir. Um, Anthony Walker as well at the linebacker spot, who the previous coach regime didn't want. He kept him around. Kind of had a cast of vagabonds outside of Leonard, and he made it work. They're a top 15 scoring defense and total defense. You come to Chicago, you have the pieces there. Roquan Smith is Darius Leonard light. Jalen Johnson showed potential on the outside as a corner. Now, with a guy like Eberflus in the picture, he's going to finally play a Thomas Graham, who got PT late in the year to the chagrin of Bears fans because he wanted him to play early on in the year, and he showed flags against Minnesota. And I'm really curious to see the OC side. Um, they got the Green Bay Packers quarterbacks coach. That's going to be key in terms of what he provides for Justin Fields. But the defense is going to be a lot better because Eberflus has shown that he knows what he's doing on that side of the ball. He has better talent in Chicago. It's really going to be all about putting it all together with Fields. And I expect the new OC, the new coaching regime on that offensive side to include RPOs, utilize Fields' dual threat ability, that open up that offense as well. And like we stated, if Rodgers does go to Denver, that NFC North is wide open. And I feel like the Bears have the defense that currently the Vikings are searching for, the Lions don't have, and Green Bay has the talent, but personnel. They got the defense, they got the personnel. Now it's all about the offense coming together in its own right. So I have that as well. And then also, you know, Khalil Mack can finally break out again. I mean, he had a down year. And so this is what Eberflus is working with, Mack. He's working with... Roquan Smith, he's worked with Jalen Johnson. Um, he's working with Robert Quinn, who had a career year last year. So sky's the limit for the Bears. I know it's an outlandish take, but have more faith in them than your Washington because their stability at quarterback. They got a defensive personnel that they just need a new coach that can really honestly put it all together. Your thoughts? I like it. No, I, I like the Bears shout out. Washington making it and making it turn around. Definitely, uh, definitely a long shot there. But I also like Ron Rivera as the head coach, and so I have a lot of faith in Ron Rivera. But I do, I, I love what the what the Bears have been doing. I love Ryan Poles as the general manager. I like that Eberflus is getting a shot, man, and um, it makes sense. I mean, I don't know if the playoffs are in the cards for the Bears next year, but a quick turnaround or at least a good culture turnaround, I think that's definitely coming for Chicago. Yeah, culture turnaround, indeed. Up next, Senior Bowl Shrine Game standouts. Trev, you've been living in Vegas. You've been living in Mobile. You've been covering both. So um, this this is your type of topic. I know you're going to go in, go crazy. And I'm really interested to see your intel on it. So uh, let's start off with the guys that you were intrigued by that stood out the most in the Shrine Bowl, because I watched both games. 
but I didn't really have the luxury to see the practices like you were probably able to on site. Um, Who stood out to you on the game and who maybe didn't stand out in practice, but when they were in a live game setting, they truly flashed on TV. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a whole week thing, definitely, because you get practice and you get set up and um, guys are in new environments for the first time and they've got a couple of practices underneath their belt and they're working with the NFL teams and then we got the game and everything. I'll just kind of go like full week standouts. It, it's probably the best way that I could do it. Somebody on the defensive side of the ball I really liked it was Ali Faya, the pass rusher from Western Michigan. Didn't have a lot of production going into this season, but then had a 12-sack year kind of out of nowhere. Um, changed his number from, I think, like in the 50s to number one, and I would like to attribute his good aesthetics to him playing better uh, in this past final year. Man, he's a lot of fun he understands pass rushing really well he's not the most athletic guy in the world but he gets it he's got so many different pass rush moves he's got good counters he knows how to set people up he didn't get a combine invite man which i was really disappointed about because athleticism was really the only question mark that i had with him a lot of the rest of the tape and the production and everything was all there and that's especially what i saw uh, out in vegas man he was he was tearing it up against some of those offensive tackles at the Shrine Bowl, and he was looking really, really good. So he's probably the top defensive player, I think, from that group that I really enjoyed. Offensive side of the ball, two wide receivers probably stood out to me the most. Kyle Phillips, a wide receiver from UCLA. Um, I can't remember if he played in the game. I don't think he played in the game, but uh, he was, I mean, he was absolutely tearing it up at practice. He looked unguardable from day one all the way on, no matter who he's going up against, whether it was taller corners, shorter corners, safeties, hybrid guys in the slot on the outside. Kyle Phillips from UCLA was absolutely cooking him. He's a Hunter Renfro type. Hate to use that stereotype, but it is right there. Really great shifty route runner. Doesn't have the athletic gifts. Isn't going to wow you with size, but man, this dude can get open. He understands separation really well. Another guy who did. Josh Johnson, the wide receiver from Tulsa, another dude, tons of highlights out of the week because he was able to separate. He was able to play really, really well. Uh, I believe he took that into the game too. Creating separation, making easy throws, making the windows for these quarterbacks to hit. These are some guys that I was just really, really, I, I was really impressed with. I mean, I really was. I guess a couple of other guys in the defensive line now that I'm thinking about it, Matthew Butler from Tennessee showed some good flashes as an interior pass rusher. Markwell McCall, the interior defensive lineman from Kentucky, nicknamed Bully Ball McCall, and he was absolutely doing that uh, out there in Vegas, uh, pushing those centers, pushing those guards back, winning a lot of one-on-ones. He was fantastic there. And then a running back, I'll give a shout-out to Pierre Strong Jr. of South Dakota State. He had a fantastic career with the Jackrabbits. Three 1,000-yard seasons would have been four without the pandemic-shortened season in 2020. So this guy, starting as a true freshman, would have had four straight 1,000-yard seasons for him. So he was their entire offense. He definitely stood out. He's a speedster. He's a breakaway guy, and I thought that he put that on display in Vegas. So those are a handful of guys that, as I'm kind of thinking in my head, thinking about my notes, really stood out to me. Yeah, um, Strong took a screen to the house in the game. That, that really stood out to me as well. I like Samori Toure from Nebraska. He was a former Montana guy from the FCS, made the FCS FBS transfer and was productive. And in that game at 6'3", you don't expect somebody at that height to move so well. But he had the sweet spin move to get the score. And then he got vertical on the defense, got the long ball touchdown. Um, him and uh, EJ Brown had a nice little connection. All right, and Jack Cone was solid as well. Look, Jack Cone was always a solid guy out of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know Wisconsin – he thought he was too solid and was like, yo, we're going to rock with Graham Mertz because he has the upside. Didn't really work out for him uh, when he had time. And I thought the offensive line for his respective team played well. Um, he took what the defense gave him. He was accurate. He was pinpoint. He was solid. Um, and in a quarterback class that's relatively weak, and we're going to get to that in the senior bowl, um, 
being able to just make the simple reads and be effective would allow you to be drafted later in these rounds and be a nice, solid participant on a roster spot and maybe be a solid backup. Um, I like Ty Chandler and Jay Sean Corbin. Um, with Corbin, man, tough physical runner, uh, really was able to hit the hole and finish his runs and show his little burst and whatnot. And Ty Chandler is more of an elusive guy. He did it as yep. well on the perimeter, showcased his hands, did put the ball on the ground. But um, he's a guy that he can run in between the tackles. He can catch out the backfield and the acceleration, the elusiveness. A running back that's always able to do both kind of uh, elevates their longevity within the league and makes them a more answer thing. And so for the North Carolina Tar Heels, man, that's, that's good for them because you have Michael – um, Carter and you had Javante Williams. Now you got Ty Chandler, a little bit yep. of run back. You there don't want to put that out there officially, but underrated to say the least there. So those are the guys that stood out for me in the shrine bowl. Want to give a shout out to, uh, James Houston. Uh, he went to Jackson state on the JSU alum. He did the NFL PA bowl and the shrine game. Uh, you don't really see that. Usually, usually you do one of the two, not both. And why he didn't make any, um, sacks, you, was a fear he was a force off the edge um and he was really giving uh tackles fits on the perimeter so give him a shout out for that as well uh up next the senior bowl now the senior bowl uh that's that's the game had a ton of guys tight ends the quarterbacks the d linemen all of those guys and i'm gonna just start off the rip and start with desmond ritter so Mm -hmm. listen to stock exchange where you and connor were talking about how the quarterbacks in general this class ain't it. And you talked about how Ritter didn't look good in practice. Now, when the game went on, it was different. Like he was, he was accurate with his throws. There weren't any like wow, tastic, but uh, on bootlegs, he was hitting guys in stride. He showcases mobility. The command was there. Uh, and a lot of guys, well, I won't say a lot of guys, but you got some guys in the PFF circle that are really high on him because he's great behind the ears. Like he can read defenses. He has a great command at the line. He knows what he sees. He can check things and he's got the mobility and whatnot with Ritter. And I heard he's working with Jordan Palmer is the main thing that's holding them back is accuracy. And if it is, um, can he have, and I, and I know you're not going to like when I say this, can he have a Josh Allen type evolution to where he can put that all together and be the quarterback that a lot of guys think he can be? Uh, no, he cannot have a Josh Allen uh, evolution. Josh Allen is one of one. He is one of a kind. I will not compare anyone to Josh Allen. That that arm ability is truly unique. And even though the Desmond Raider has a good arm, it's nothing close to what we've seen with Josh Allen. No, I do think that, that accuracy is definitely his biggest issue. But even beyond accuracy, um, I think the touch is something that really uh, is – standing in the way of me thinking that he could be a solid, successful starting quarterback in the NFL because accurate and touch are, they're two different things. You know, you can, you can have a lot of reps where you are consistently throwing to a wide receiver and you can get the timing right and you can get the ball placement right and you can improve your accuracy. You can improve your mechanics. And Desmond Rear's got some fantastic mechanics. His lower body is married with his upper body, if you will. It's no wasted jerky motion. It's, you know, the power is coming from the back foot and it's going all the way up through the arm and it's smooth up until the ball's released. He's sinking down. He's got great balance. He's got a good base. Uh, the throwing motion is pretty compact and solid. So like all of those things are really great and that is improving his accuracy, but there are still times when he just misses passes. And I have to think that's just because of touch now. Touch is tough for me to overcome because 
a lot of times touch is just you have it or you don't. And I think that Desmond Ritter does so many things well. He's got really clean mechanics. He's improved his accuracy in certain ways. He understands the timing of different throws. You could tell he's very well-versed, well-practiced, knows how to read the field, knows how to get through progressions, does a lot of things that you like, has some extra mobility to him. You like the arm strength to push the field, but the touch on some passes that I just go, why is he missing that? How did he miss that throw? I've seen him make that throw before. And it's just the inconsistencies with touch that he puts on the ball that make me fearful because I don't, I, I don't know how much that gets better. Accuracy and touch to me are two different things. And when you are as clean of a prospect as Desmond Ritter is, and yet you are still missing a handful of throws like that, there's not a lot that you can do to improve touch other than just hope that he gets better at it. And I'm, I'm not really in the business of drafting quarterbacks off of hoping that they get better. I've got to have an answer for them. I got to know how to improve them. It's got to be something that I can see or else it's just, I get worried. So that's kind of what's big in the way of me with Desmond Ritter right now. Yeah. The touch aspect is real because I've seen some tape on it and I'm like, the base is fine. The arm motion's fine. It's fluid. The ball comes out well, but he does miss. And I've seen several guys growing up that had touch issues, Cam Newton, Colin Kaepernick, Josh Allen early in his career. But what separated those guys from Ritter was at least they had the strong his arm. So you could kind of deal yes. with the touch issue because you can just label that as his arm strong as heck. Um, Ritter's arm isn't that strong. And so you do start to wonder, all right, like your arm's good, but because your arm's not a rocket, there's a risk with your lack of touch because your lack of touch can lead to a pick. It can lead to my receiver getting killed. And I think the, the best thing put on tape was his Alabama game where his ball was just getting batted down at the line. And I think a lot of that has to do with the touch because it's coming out like a line drive and it's okay to throw line drives when you need to like over the middle on scenes. But when you have a line drive all the time on the boundaries, like that's a risk. And that is something that he does have to work on. Um, the tight ends, Trent McBride, phenomenal in practice he's phenomenal yep. in the game he's obviously t1 he's a fluid specimen i thought ritter and jake ferguson from wisconsin had a nice little connection he showcased his ability after the catch this tight end class is so deep you got these guys you got the guy from iowa state um you have the guy from coastal carolina like you you can't go wrong with what you want out of a tight end um what will it come down to in terms of where these tight ends go because uh, i think i heard you say you don't want to take these guys in the first round. But where could you see someone taking the plunge on a McBride or on a Ferguson or on a variety of these tight ends to kind of make their passing game go to the next level? Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of them on day two somewhere. I think that Trey McBride's probably going to be a second-round pick. Um, I think that Jeremy Ruckert from Ohio State might be a second-round pick, but probably I think he's close to a third-round pick at this point. The combine's going to determine a lot with this tight end class because if a lot of guys show up and they're a lot more athletic than I think they are, you know, you can throw Isaiah Likely in there as well, Jalen Weidermeyer, Cade Otten. Uh, you mentioned Charlie Kohler. Like, if these guys test way better than I think that they're going to, then all of a sudden you're bumping a lot of them up into that day two range in the mid rounds. And so they're probably going to have a lot of guys that you see go from round one to, or sorry, round two to round four. But that's probably the way that I see it right now. I think that McBride's probably the only second round pick, maybe Rucker. And then you're getting into a handful of other guys that I think are going to go either in the third round or right at the beginning of the fourth round. So we'll see. The combine's actually going to be a lot of fun for these guys. I think it's a deep-ish tight end group, but it's not super star-studded. You know, it's obviously, you know, I, 
I'm I, I'm going to hate saying the words. There's not a Kyle Pitts in this draft because there's like never a Kyle Pitts in any draft. So, but it's just it, it. There aren't a lot of really great tight ends. I'll go back to when OJ Howard, Evan Ingram, David Joku all went in the third round. It's not something like that. It, it's it's a lot further down the big board for that. So it's uh it's deep. I think you're gonna get a lot of different kinds of NFL tight ends in this class, but it's not super star studded. So I think the Trey McBride's probably off the board first. Yeah, I think so as well. And like you said, Kyle Pitts, is, he's one of one. Like, I mean, you're not going to – Kyle Pitts is just don't pop up on draft boards every year. That's like once every five or six. But right. if these guys can all be like Dallas Goddards or, you know, guys that are productive and moving the changes and become like that third option that makes your young quarterback comfortable in the passing game, that will ever so elevate you. Um, Abram Smith, he's Sean, running back from Baylor. He's a powerful guy in between the tackles, uh, showcase ability to catch out of the backfield. This running back class, yet again, is also deep. It's like every class is deep except quarterback. Quarterback's the issue. Um, so we already know who RB1 and RB2, RBR, Brees Hall. And then you got um, the guy from Michigan State after that. Um, with a guy like Smith, again, like I stated before, being able to run between the tackles and be productive out of the backfield as a receiver helps. How did you think he improved his stock in the senior bowl? No, I think he played well. And the best part about the senior bowl is you're going up against new competition and, and a new system. And I think that Baylor, you know, has this notion that it's a little gimmicky and that being in the big 12, you're not sure how much you could trust that offense in there, but you know, I really like his game. He played really well at the senior bowl, um, especially in the game. And, He's got that former linebacker background. Remember, he was playing linebacker for the Baylor Bears before he went over to running back full time. And so I love that guys have that experience. Tyler Algier at BYU is another player in this class who used to play linebacker at the college level at that school and then kind of transferred over and made sure he was uh, a full-time line or a full-time running back. But I like that background because you've been on both sides of the ball. If you will, you understand what to do as a ball carrier. And you also understand what the other guy is probably thinking and how he's going to bring you down. And I think that's what has allowed um, Abram Smith to, break a lot of different tackles, force a lot of missed tackles. It's the same thing with Tyler Algier. So I just, I really like that part of his background. And so he is part of, yeah, a deep running back group this year. A deep running back group this year, indeed. Um, wrap up the senior bowl, Sam Howell, Kenny Pickett. Uh, they were part of that quarterback collage as well as Malik Willis. I thought Howell showcases mobility pretty well. Um, you know, his passing thing is it's really up and down for me. I just, Worry with him driving the football consistently down the field. That's a question. Kenny Pickett didn't perform particularly well in practice, but in a more controlled in-game setting, he was he was solid. Uh, look, the Kenny Pickett love is intense. A lot of guys have him as QB1. Then Malik Willis showcased his um, arm talent and his athleticism, and then now he's in the discussion for QB1. Uh, yet again, you're not that sold on this QB class, but if you have a safe bet in terms of putting all your chips on, he has the best chance to pan. Is it going to be a Pickett, a Willis, a Howell, a Strong, or the guy that didn't even compete because currently he's injured, Matt Corral? Uh, that, okay, I got I to gotta ask you to clarify because you kind of asked two different questions. Am I betting all of this on a guy kind of like panning out? And when you say pan out, do you mean that it's just going to be solid for me? Or am I picking one of these guys to bet on that might win a Super Bowl someday? Which one, which one are you asking? They're different questions. <laughs> They're different questions. They're very different questions. I think at this point, pan out because the class is so – a lot of people have convinced themselves, rightfully so, that this class just isn't it. And so I don't think anybody's thinking this guy has to lead me to a Super Bowl. I think 
anybody would be lucky as an organization to get a guy that's a solid NFL starter for at least a six to seven year period. So who do you think that maybe can be? Then I, w- I would tell you the two the two safest bets that I have in this class are either Kenny Pickett or Matt Corral. I, I don't know whether Kenny Pickett is going to fully pan out in the NFL. We'll see. Matt Corral, I think, at least has some higher athletic tools than Kenny Pickett does. But Kenny Pickett obviously took the biggest leap this past year in college football. He was fantastic. But even then, you know, there are a bunch of times where Kenny Pickett takes a snap and then immediately bails from the pocket, has like these – Eight, like seven or nine step drops and then immediately avoids pressure like that and and just throws the ball somewhere else where I go okay that's probably not gonna fly in the NFL as fun as it is in college it's kind of the same thing for Matt Corral Matt Corral is coming from a Lane Kiffin offense where Lane Kiffin makes it decently easy for his quarterbacks to read there's not a ton of thinking there's not a lot of there's not a ton of like pre and post snap reading that you have to do everything's pretty manufactured it's on time it's on script and so like I, I like those two players abilities the best and so I guess I I would vote on that. If I had to put them all on one of them, I would put it on Kenny Pickett just because I don't know what Matt Corral is going to be outside of a Lane Kiffin offense. I, I don't know. I don't know how much confidence I'm supposed to have in that either. So I guess my answer is still Kenny Pickett. Yeah, uh, this draft reminds me a lot of the Bridgewater draft. And I think Kenny Pickett, ironically enough, is Bridgewater. And Bridgewater, I think, before he got hurt, we'll never know because I thought he showed growth and progress as a quarterback. He got injured. Um, and then after that, he kind of never was able to recuperate the blossoms of hope that he had in Minnesota. But um, I think Pickett's that. Um, Corral, I just, like you said, I don't know because they ran a lot of RPO offensive schemes at Ole Miss. And like you said, Kiffin made his life a lot easier by having him keep the ball or if you're going to pull it and pass one read and then it's not there to go. And my biggest issue with Corral is he runs like he's Cam Newton, but he's not. Like he's 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 not built like that He's he, at all. And so – I just wonder that play style it, with that, it never dies until you get into the NFL and you face some level of controversy because you get injured. And so that's my issue with him there. Um, Malik Willis has all the tools, but it ultimately comes down to his footwork is all over the place. Um, Malik is Malik is so far away, man. Malik, without yeah. a doubt, has the highest ceiling in this class. He's got the best arm. He's got the best legs. No question about it. But he is so far away from being a reliable NFL quarterback right now. If he gets drafted, if Malik Willis gets drafted at say 11 to Washington and they're playing him in week one, they're in trouble. Like they're in big trouble and Malik's in big trouble. And I don't want that for him because they're going to throw him to the wolves. He's going to look bad. And then he's going to get put on the bench and he's not going to get a chance again. And it's going to be the worst thing for him. And so I'm worried, man, because I think Malik can be really, really good but he's nowhere close to what he needs to be right now to be a successful NFL quarterback. And if you draft him in the first round, guess what? You've probably got to play him in year one and that's going to suck. And, and I, I don't want that for Malik, man. I really don't. I don't either because when I see Malik play, I see like a super athletic Dak Prescott, but for him to be Prescott, he's probably going to have to take a seat. And like you said, if he gets picked in the first round, he's not going to be able to take the seat. Because guys are going to like need to put him on the floor. So when I hear Tomlin out here saying he wants Pickett 20th overall, that means Tomlin's probably feels like I can plug him in and have kind of an offensive revolution like my rival the Ravens had with Lamar. But that's a risk because what helped the Ravens a lot when Lamar came in was that team was a lot, it was a lot more complete than Pittsburgh is right now. Pittsburgh has talent, they have individual stars, but their offensive line's not there. Um, the receiving core could be in flux if Juju's gone. And like you said, Malik's just not ready. But the ceiling is, is through the roof. But I think footwork, 
but they read defenses, accuracy, consistency, all that. And that's going to take time, repetition, reps behind the scenes that we won't ever see. And putting him on the field in week one, that's not the way for him to do that. Uh, last but not least to wrap up this pod, combine invites to be intrigued by. Everybody's going to be there. I'm not, and I know, um, Trev, you got some guys that feel like they should have been there that didn't make the cuts. So it's unfortunate. But the big name guys are going to be the Ritters, the Strongs, the Malik Willis's, the Drake London's, the David Bells. Um, I'm going to ask you, the guys that you're excited to see at the combine and are just intrigued about how they're going to test or how they're going to look in these respective drills to maybe validate your hype on them or kind of shed a light of skept- shed a light on what they could be and ease your skepticism to a degree. Well, I'll, I'll just list some guys that I think have a lot on the line. First one I'm going to say, the guy who probably has the most money to gain is uh, is Devin Lloyd, the, the linebacker from Utah. If Devin Lloyd shows up and tests really well athletically, Devin Lloyd is probably going to the top 10. I mean, I, I just when you look at what he was able to do, the body of work that he's had over the last three years, the production that he had this past season with takeaways and big stops, if he tests well, he's probably going in the top 10. So he'll be linebacker one if he could test super well. Um, he's somebody that I'm really looking forward to. He's improved his game so much. He was a big tackler in his first year as a sophomore. It better as a run defender and a blitzer the year after that. And then this past year, he put it all together and was even a great coverage player with takeaways and interceptions and everything. So he's got the full all-around game. He's got the stats now if he checks the boxes athletically he's going in the top 10 another guy i'm really looking forward to seeing how he tests is george karloftis because i like george karloftis's tape a lot the edge rusher out of purdue he's about six foot three 270 pounds i want to see how he tests agility wise because i don't you don't see a ton of that flexibility and change of direction with his game style at Purdue, but if he still got it there in him, then I can have a lot of faith that he'll even be, he'll be better in the NFL. He'll be able to translate what we've seen from Purdue to the league. So I'm looking forward to that as well. Brees Hall running back. You mentioned him probably going to be RB one. He's RB one for me right now, but the biggest complaint that I have about Brees Hall is the long speed step up through the 40 yard dash. Show me you got the long speed and you will solidify being the top back in this draft. He's so patient. He's so smart he's so good in the receiving game he knows what he's doing man he just understands running the ball so well he's great for his own blocking scheme and if he proves that he's got that long speed then that'll check a lot of boxes i am looking forward to how george pickens tests the wide receiver out of georgia because going into the season before his injury i had him as wide receiver one and right now i've got him as wide receiver two i think he brings a full all-around profile six foot three 210 pounds brings the size bring the length brings the alpha mentality he's got the big catches he knows how to win on the outside understands the art of playing at the sideline can play in the slot a little bit but he's played more on the outside for georgia if this dude can test really well athletically, I'm going to wash my hands of it. And I'm going to be like first round player. I don't care. Like, I like, I don't, I, like, I don't care. You drafting this dude in the first round. So I think that he has a lot of money to be made there. Uh, one other guy I want to shout out Ky- Kyron Williams, the other running back uh, that I'm very intrigued with from Notre Dame, him, same thing, long speed. What can you get up there and run in the 40? Show me that you've got a fast 40 and there's so much of the game that I really enjoy. Nobody in this running back class pass protects like Kyron Williams. I love that about his game, his intangibles there. He's got great hands. He's a fantastic option as a third down back, but can he be more? Can he be an RB one for teams? If he can show that he's got that long speed, that final gear that a lot of people are questioning for him. So those are a handful of guys that I'm looking forward to seeing for a variety of reasons. Yeah, all good. All good choices. Uh, when I turn the tape on Reese Hall, he just reminds me of Le'Veon Bell. But I agree the long speed just isn't 
they are on film, it doesn't pop out. So if you test pretty well in the 40, especially as a back, um, sub four, four to four, three, four, four, you're sold. Pickens, I think, like you said, um, the talent was there at Georgia. Um, injuries hurt him. Um, he showcased a lot of potential his freshman year. I feel like he's a guy where he's just a good combine away from being, like you said, a first-round pick because that's immense value you can get late in the rounds where he might not pop on tape because of injuries. But if he runs like a 4-3 and he just dominates the agility drills, long jump, all of that, and then the catching drills, he's just killing it, uh, that's going to be great for him. For me, Drake London, because he's a lot of guys, wide receiver one, and when you turn on film, he's a fluid route runner. Um, he can catch the football. He's a great possession catcher. I think the question is just the 40 because a lot of people feel like, can you be that fast because of that body type? Is he going to run though? I don't know if he's going to run because he broke, he broke the ankle in October. I don't know. I don't know if he's going to run. I don't know if he's going to, he might might not run until his pro day, but like you were totally right. He has a, his athleticism has a lot on the line. So whether he runs it, combine or pro day or maybe he won't run at all i just wanted to say i just wanted to say like i don't know if he's gonna run he might he might say no that's a great point he did he is recovering from the broken leg because right now his prototype cats could fall in love and say he's michael Pittman jr and that's a little different than if he's able to pave his own path showcasing the 40 he's might have that michael Pittman jr prototype but he's his own man because he could take the top off of defense and be a productive intermediate route runner David Bell, man. I like David Bell a lot when I turn on the tape. He reminds me a lot of Kelvin Ridley. And you, nice. you made a comment on, on Bell in the context of the speed element. Um, a lot of guys don't think he's fast. But if he's able to come out there and run a sub 4-4, it opens it up for him as well. Because we get the Ohio State guys, Wilson and Alave, Drake London, um, Traylon Burks, who's a, a man amongst boys. We know they're going to get the hype and the hoopla. But David Bell could fall because of that. And he's a great value pick because – in an offensive system at Purdue where quarterback play was, was up and down all year, he found a way to make plays. He found a way to be productive, and he's tough as nails. Like, he's really able to go over the middle of the field, take a hit, and be productive in the passing game in an intermediate route, which you don't – which is kind of a necessity at that height because a lot of guys may look at your height, stature, measure moves, and think you're a speed guy. You might not be that tough, and he showed that toughness on a daily. I um, want to get to this before we wrap it up. Um, the HBCU talent. Um, we got three HBCU guys that are going to be at the combine last year. No HBCU prospects got drafted at all. I think that changes for sure. Marquise Bell, the Kobe Durant, Joshua Williams. Let's start with Marquise Bell. I watched a lot of FAMU this year because they were the hot team in the swag outside of Jackson State. They actually made the FCS playoffs. When I look at Marquise Bell play, he reminds me a lot of Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, where I don't think he is – a guy that can play full-time safety, but he can do everything. He can play your safety that can protect the range. He can play in a slot. He can play in a box. And the thing that resonates to me the most that raised this stock, in my opinion, was the Southeastern Louisiana tape. Um, him and uh, the UCF transfer, Antoine Collier, they, they balled. And Bell was always in the picture to break up a pass, make tackles. He was always around the football. He was always that physical presence that met some type of resistance against that top-notch Southeastern Louisiana passing game. So that's what I feel like on Bell. With Durant, he's fluid. He's athletic. I thought he kind of submitted his status when he played against Jackson State in the Celebration Bowl, and he took away Malachi Wyman, who was a huge deal um, in the swag because of his big playability with the 12 touchdowns. His ability just flowed from sideline to sideline, staying his hip pocket was phenomenal. And then Joshua Williams from Fayetteville State, 
killed the senior bowl with the measurables. Um, and it's when you got a guy at six three and could potentially run a four three, that's crazy because a lot of guys is that tall at corner. They they got the, they're tall. Um, he used to be a receiver, so they're tall. They got the ball skills, but they run four fives because of the height and power aspect. So I made sure to see all three of those guys, and then add one more, Jatir Carter. Um, from Southern. He was phenomenal um, as a tackle and the swag. I thought he held his own as senior, but at the guard spot, seeing him measure out potentially is going to be productive as well. These are all four guys I feel that could get drafted and their draft prospects can be elevated because of solid days in the uh, scouting combine because I get it. Not a lot of people watch swag. As I know, um, Trev and Connor, I know this is what you guys do, but for them to be able to shine bright on the biggest stage like that and line up with the measurable whatnot can add to the tape that a lot of people may have not seen. Joshua Williams is the only one in that group that I've, I've put a lot of eyeballs on, but like, he was awesome, man. He was especially awesome in mobile. Like he, he stood out. Like he, he, he didn't just look like he belonged. He stood out. I thought, especially in day one, when a lot of the corners were timid, he had so much confidence and you mentioned it, man, that long frame that he has that twitched up athletic ability. Not a lot of corners have that man. And so I thought that he had a really great day one, um, a little bit like got a little bit exposed on day two, but it's corner. I mean, like that happens all the time. Like some days you just like you're on the bat at some reps, man. I, I felt like day one, day two, day three, Joshua Williams showed us that he is absolutely an NFL type of corner. I hope he balls out of the combine. That would be fantastic. But he's a dude who I think absolutely should get drafted, especially off of what we saw from the senior bowl. He was a cornerback group that I'll say like wasn't star studded, but like he definitely stood out. Like he, I, it would be hard to get away from mobile and say, that Joshua Williams wasn't one of the better corners that you watched that week. At least I certainly thought though. So I'm glad that you gave him a shout out. I got to watch those other guys too. There's a lot of guys that I'm still getting to their tape from now until probably like the end of March, early April, when we start to really solidify the big board and everything. But Joshua Williams, I have seen, and I know he could play. He's good. Yeah, man, he's good indeed. Those measurables, he's for sure going to break through and get drafted indeed. Well, that's the end of episode 43 of the Independent Talk Podcast. Um, it was great to have Trevor Sikama on, uh, PFF host and reporter. Um, before I go, Trevor, just want you to talk about your experience on the pod. Um, your first PFF associate that I've had on. I'm going to try to bring more of you guys on the platform in the future as we are in the intriguing times of the NFL offseason where it's draft and free agency and all that. Um, but, Trevor, just talk about your experience on Intel Pod and uh, – what did you like talking about the most and what you're looking forward to as we head towards the scouting combine March 1st to March 7th? I appreciate you having me on, Cam. It means a lot that I was the first PFF guy, so that uh, means a lot. I appreciate it. This is fantastic, man. It was great to chop it up and talk some ball with you. You know your stuff, man, and you know you brought a lot of great information to the table. It was great to just talk a little ball with you, whether it was pro, whether it was college, whether it was draft. This is a lot of fun for me, so I appreciate you having me on. It was great to highlight some of these prospects with you. I'm sure we'll do it again soon. Sure, we will indeed. Um, and with that, guys, this is episode 43. I'll be back. Probably sometime this week with episode 44, we'll pivot from football to basketball because, you know, basketball season is still underway. But always great to have my man Trevor on. Going to stay in tune with the NFL draft process and the NFL offseason. But with that, I'll be back again soon. Enjoy this listen because it's a pretty good one. Peace.